This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay in Dunedin, and today I'm joined by Jean Ross. When I say joined by, she's actually sitting in the office. Hey, Sam. (laughs) Jean, you came to see us on show 48. We're currently on 68, so a month ago. Aha. And we talked about the research that you have been doing, uh, talking to uh, rural nurses in New Zealand. Yes. And you've carried on doing that, and you've got some from America. I have. What are you hoping to find out? Well, I'd like to know how the rural nurses in America are coping with the um, COVID-19 and what their experiences are. And then eventually to look at the comparison between New Zealand rural nurses and American rural nurses. So you've been talking to them, you've brought three in today. Who have we got first? We've got Sheila Westfield. All right. So my name is Sheila Westfield. I'm a registered nurse and director of nursing at Sanford Laverne Medical Center, which is a rural hospital. Um, We are located in southwest Minnesota, which is a a part of the Midwest of the United States. The community is very much based on agriculture. Um, We do live about um, 30 miles away from a larger um, from a larger city in South Dakota and that is um, where we are affiliated with Sanford. We are a, a network hospital of a larger system. So there's a larger hospital um, about 30 minutes away. Um, we generally have about seven patients a day. We, we do have a, a busy ER and um, deliver OBs in our facility, about um, 90 OBs, 90 deliveries um, a Shula, year. Sheila, just for the um, clarification for the New Zealand audience, could you explain what OB is, please? Okay, so an OB is a, a mother that's pregnant and comes in in labor and would deliver her baby. Are you aware of any changes that have happened during this period, Sheila? So um, a lot of things changed. We started having um, daily and weekly, you know, meetings based on um, what needed to be arranged. A lot of our, our regular meetings were shut down put on hold for a while and instead we simply had meetings about COVID about what needed to be worked out for the day or for the week and what supplies we needed what what workflows we needed to um, get implemented a lot of times we ended up changing something that very day 
sending out communication to staff saying this is how we're going to do it now sometimes we had 15 minutes <laughs> to you know make a decision and get it implemented and then in two hours something changed so then you had to tell staff again well now we're going to do this a little bit differently but it, it just was a very fluid um fluid time everything was changing and you just went with it and you tried your best to communicate and keep up with it and and figure out what was going on how, how did your staff feel about the, um, the changes that you were implementing so um i think like everybody else there was just this element of fear um, knowing that it was a very serious illness out there, but they they really were um, interested that I set up daily Skype meetings so that they could log in from home if they weren't working um, and just give them the updates for the day or tell them we moved this here or we got this piece of equipment. So that way they felt like they could stay on top of all the changes too. Normally we just meet once a month, have a nurses meeting once a month but we were doing it daily. You know, the schools shut down and they all went to online learning. So the children were home. And a lot of our, our um, nurses were, were parents. So here now they have their children at home. And, but luckily the school system did set up a daycare for healthcare workers and police and um, firefighters. So they did have a place to send their children. Um, if they didn't have a friend or family member that could watch them. Um, and then a, a lot of the learning was over the computer. So that was that was a big learning curve for the teachers and the school system to get that set up very quickly. The, as far as the rest of the community, you know, restaurants were shut down or could do delivery only, or, or you could come pick up food only. So that that was hard. That's hard on small businesses. I think um, we still haven't seen the full effect of how that has affected those businesses. Um, some probably won't reopen. Um, we just finally were able to have the restaurants reopen to 50% capacity. So they're, they're not even fully open to normal yet. Did you um, need to implement um, any support for your staff during this period? Um, I, I think so. I think staff really felt like they had a place where they could um, bring their questions to and, and even just bring their um, voice their concern about their fears of not even at work, but just things at home too. It just gave them a time to talk about it. So there again, the word fear, a lot of fear with it. Um, we, at our small hospital, we see a lot of geriatric patients. Um, they come for, to get stronger, to, to rehab so they can go back home. Um, the biggest struggle we found is that we weren't allowing visitors. And so you have um, patients that feel very isolated and very lonely. So we had to come up with ways for them to connect with their family, like Zoom or FaceTime or a lot of the electronic ways. Um, but it, it just was hard. It just, the building was empty because there's no visitors around and you realize how 
they've become a very big part of your day when they're not Were there. you aware of the nurses um, taking the responsibility and um, being a companion to, the, um, to your patients at this time? I think so. I think they've, um, you know, learned to, to bring in that puzzle or that, um, you know, just try and connect with them in a little bit different way because they know it's so essential right now. What do you think the future will hold? Do you think there's going to be any positive changes from this? Well, I think it just really slows down all um, viruses and germs out there that, you know, maybe when you went to the grocery store before you were picking up a lot of illnesses you didn't know so um yeah i'm i'm glad to see a lot of in public places that didn't have that before it's nice to have that option there now i see you know how a lot of us are wearing a mask well we have to wear a mask all day at work and i see that really um continuing. I don't know if it'll continue to all the time like we are, but I can see it being used more with when we're working with patients. Um, I even, I think even the way we build and design our hospitals will probably change based off of this. We had to install some negative airflow units in some of our rooms. And I think if we ever remodeled, um, that would just be a part of the build. Well, another thing I saw within our small hospital is the staff were so willing to help each other out. You know, some of our therapy department was was slow. Patients didn't want to come in. So they came out to the nursing floor and they were willing to help us out there. And same with the surgery staff. They We weren't doing surgeries, so they were willing to come out and um, learn new skills. And it, it just was so nice to see people being so willing to help. And that's when you're glad to live in that small town, rural, rural community. On reflection, do you think that you are acting um, as a role model for the community people? That's a good question. You know, they when you interact with patients that you know, and maybe you live next door to them or go to church with them, it just puts a, a higher... Um, higher standard of, you know, you, you just go above and beyond trying to make sure they're safe and, and everything's going to be okay. It just puts that extra seal of, of goodness in your care, I think. So when I go to church now, I try to wear my mask or, or to the grocery store because I feel like I am the example. That is very correct. As we close this interview, Sheila, do you have any advice for anybody in your community? I just want to let people know that, you know, just when I drive around my small community, a lot of people have signs on their front yards, um, faith over fear. And just, just to remember that, you know, each day we'll get through, through this and on to the next and um, eventually we'll adjust and, and, and life will be normal again. It'll be a different normal, but will be normal. She there is talking to us from southwest Minnesota. I thought it was interesting how she was talking about the role of the the rural nurse in terms of the, the community and in some cases almost acting as family. Mm-hmm. I suppose it's a small community 
and the rural hospital would be the hub of that community. And therefore, as she was explaining, um, she's a role model, she sees herself as a role model, but also um, aware of um, her relationship with members of the community in the church. Um, and um, a small community would um, extenuate your, your relationships in those areas been the nurse and I would have thought and I didn't know but she would have been a nurse in that community for many many years. Does that make it complicated like seeing people in the shops and things that if, if you're the nurse for, the, for that town mm -hmm. does, does it change relationships or how, how does he how I, do they maintain that? I think that's that's the essence of rural practice is that um, anonymity you is um, just not there and you are the nurse and to be a rural nurse that's why how you, you your personal professional life become intertwined and it is part of your everyday practice who do we have next Gwen Post from Worthington uh, Ohio Minnesota okay my name is my name is Gwen Post and I am an RN, a registered nurse, and my educational level is a master's level of educational preparation. And I attained my master's of arts in nursing with a focus in transcultural nursing care. I am currently the director of nursing and clinical services over um, Sanford Worthington Medical Center. And I primarily have responsibility over the hospital environment. And I have a wide variety of managers that report to me from many clinical areas. We have, of course, our um, inpatient or hospitalized patients for medical and surgical and women's health for obstetric and gynecology, so both for labor and delivery and for gynecological surgeries. Um, I oversee the surgery department, um, and then I also oversee um, our emergency department and um, we have some outpatient nursing areas that do infusion therapies, um, cardiac rehab, and home care, and I oversee those. And then um, I also oversee our pharmaceutical um, department for in the hospital. And we just have a, um, our pharmaceutical department just pays um, service to our hospitalized patients or to our outpatient departments. We do not have a pharmacy that we prescribed to customers within our hospital. Some hospitals do that, but we do not locally here. So that's the scope of my care. I also have an indirect connection with the clinics that are um, service our community, and I help to support the nursing supervisor in those clinics also for clinical questions and coordinating care um, with care transition between um, our discharged patients and then those that need care management follow-up to have good outcomes. Could you elaborate on how COVID-19 has affected you um, and your community? I would say it has impacted us significantly. Um, in Nobles County, um, our service area for our hospital serves about 20,000 residents in our, in our surrounding communities. Um, and as, as we started, uh, we have a lot of industry in our community that um, had a, a large COVID outbreak in it that have communal types of manufacturing settings. So the workers are very close to each other. 
for a long period of time on manufacturing lines, um, some meat packing in industries within our community. And so we um, were fearful and then we realized our fears when there was an outbreak at one of our meat packing. So we had a, um, we had a large per capita infection rate of COVID in our community, in the community that we serve for our, for our patients in the community. And we had a tight relationship with them because we were um, their primary care provider too through a um, narrow network insurance provider. So they, they were very familiar with us in our community too as patients. So we had, we had a large impact locally of COVID-19. Um, and it really became um, a media hotspot for the state of Minnesota. Minnesota um, with that high per capita infection rate. Um, comparing us to New York, um, for example, um, that had a similar per capita infection rate, but yet we are very rural and obviously don't have the same resources that a New York City would have. So we, we did a lot of um, preparation and work with our larger health system, of which we are involved with the Sanford Health Network. And so we had um, larger hospital tertiary centers that we could use as referral centers to offload some of our more critical. So as COVID um, started to, to start to populate in some of our little rural areas around the state of South Dakota and Minnesota and Iowa, we, we quickly decided that we'd move into an emergency operations structure here in our hospital so that we could um, filter information in, quickly form um, strike teams, I guess you would call them. Um, within our organization, um, we would designate a certain group of our leaders to um, tackle and um, provide solutions and direction and review of any issue that we had that we needed to resolve. And we, we created a lot of those little strike teams as we were preparing, you know, for both the clinical care of the patient, but also for the emotional care of our staff. And, um, and then also for media and communication. So there were a lot of um, um, I would say rapid changes that we had to respond to, both in how the disease is spread and what is available for us to, and how, how we can conserve and use crisis standards of care to help us decide what level of care we'd be able to provide in whatever moment we were. We had to research a lot of wide ranges of um, scenarios that might play out in front of us. Um, we quickly got into it. <laughs> Um, and we were we were prepared. We had you know we had good systems and processes in place to handle our first patients that came to the clinic for testing, or for the emergency room that were very ill, our first patients that needed admission for medical care. Um, and so we kept um, we kept a fairly large number of patients locally. We have a very diverse um, population of of, of um, cultural. Um, aspects across our community. Um, our community speaks over 40 languages because of a lot of immigrant population in our community. And so we knew this was a population that was going to be at risk for both coming in for care because there had been some disparity and barriers for accessing care in the past. And we knew that they were going to be at risk also for being able to um, accommodate and care for these patients in a tertiary center far away from where they so we were able to keep the um, stable medical patients and we, over the course of um, about two months, two and a half months now, we've been able to admit and care for about 75 patients locally um, with COVID infection in many different units on our um, inpatient hospital. And um, 
of those that we transferred to tertiary care, we were we only transferred about 30 patients needed a higher level of intensive care. So for the size of the organization that we are and what we um, typically see, we, we stayed at about our average daily sense um, that we typically have because we had that outlet from our tertiary care centers in Sioux Falls, which is about an hour away, to admit those critical patients. So we never got pushed out of our comfort zone in order to care for the patients, but we just had changed a little bit about where we took care of them, what we used how we cohorted the, the patients in a little different location and manner than what we would normally do for our average daily sense. You know, there was um, a lot of collaboration initially with many different levels of emergency response. Um, so particularly with our county, we had daily and weekly meetings with them with our county um, health, <clears throat> public health services. and it was difficult for us to, I guess, translate and quantify the information to the public about um, how many people were positive and how many people were we admitting because we are only one small piece of the puzzle in the community too. There's another health system in the community that was always testing. And, you know, we only knew what our information was within our own um, organization. And we didn't know the picture of some of the other organizations and what they were seeing in their in their experiences. So um, we started a community advisory council in the middle of all this because there was um, so much need for communication and collaboration with our community members because there were many, many, many people sick at home too that never came in for care that didn't get to come into ER or get sick enough to come into the hospital and be admitted. But there was a lot of family members at home um, that were ill too that needed help. So we were able to collaborate with the county to get quick attention to immediate needs within the community with the help of the Minnesota Department. Of um, and so, it, you know, I would say that there was a ground level awareness within certain pockets of the community about how prevalent the disease was in the community. But then there was a there was also another part of the community that really was um, sheltered from it because all of us had been sheltered in place. And it had a larger breakout in some of our minority populations to begin with. And so I think there was a little bit of a disconnect too with some of the population of county um, that didn't realize it was going on as much too. Have you seen any positive outcomes from uh, this experience of COVID-19? I think some of the greatest things that I've coming through this is that it has greatly strengthened our collaboration um, between our hospital and our clinic. Um, they, they're on separate campuses and they, they kind of work in their own little silo of what their scope and responsibility is. And having this to work on because it affected so many clinical levels, um, it strengthened that collaborative and how we could quickly pull that together to um, come to solutions and ideas. It also really helped us um, understand and learn about our vulnerable populations within the community. Um, and, you know, developing this community advisory council in the middle of it was, you know, something you would probably never think of doing because that has a, um, a really intentional purpose that 
that needs a lot of attention to build it successfully. And then doing that at the same time of taking care of COVID patients seemed kind of crazy, but it was really, it was, it was really beneficial to hear the voice of the community. Um, and as we go forward, when we think about COVID, we had always ha struggled with difficulty in access and access to that population and to, to, that is probably at disparity um, to, to connect with them about coming in for wellness and screening. And I think that COVID-19 kind of opened that door for us because people sought care because they were fearful and they, 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 they knew of COVID-19 as being something that they really needed to have medical care for. Um, and I think we can drive that and connect that later on for chronic disease like diabetes and um, heart disease and hypertension and, you know, just all of the wellness part that we can continue to build that trust and that connection for long-term health goals. How have you um, managed to continue your um, relationship with your um, patients, clients in the community? Have you used, um, you know, technology, telemedicine, um, anything like that? Um, I think some of the things that, you know, I think initially when we were in the middle of this, we had a lot of, we had to change gears really quickly to provide telemedicine. Um, we did very little telemedicine in our clinics, um, but we um, was, you know, it was kind of a combination of both things. We had patients that didn't want to come because they were afraid of getting COVID by coming into the clinic or the hospital. And we also had providers, you know, at first, a lot of anxiety about how to take care of patients and what's the, you know, what's the safest way to do that. And so telemedicine quickly evolved through the help of our, our health system. If we had to do that alone um, in a freestanding hospital and clinic, that would have been very difficult for us to accomplish on our own. But with the resources of the larger health system working through all of those details for us and helping us to get that on board. Um, we were able to transition to that really quickly. And now we kind of thought in the middle of it all that, you know, we may not ever come back to the same level of seeing our patients face to face, but we really found that you can only do telemed for so long. You have to, you have to get that patient back in front of you to do that better connection and that physical exam. And, you know, it's just, so much easier to build the trust when you're in person. Thank you very much, Gwen, for contributing to um, the, our radio show, Blowing Bubbles. As we come to a close, would you like to dedicate um, a song to your rural community, to your to your colleagues? Um, we'd be interested in sharing that um, with with our people in New Zealand as well. There is there is a song that I listen to a lot um, to help me through every day for inspiration. And I don't know, the words in it really have meaning um, to the, the path through my COVID-19 experience. And it, it's, um, it's called Burn the Ships by um, King and Country.
can see in your eyes there It's hard to take for a moment more We've got to burn the ships, cut the ties Send the flare into the night Say your prayer, turn the tide Dry your tears and wave goodbye Step into a new day we did this I think I remarked on how similar but different the stories were in, in that last one Gwen there is in a community that's clearly dealt with with COVID mm-hmm. do the principles stay the same is it still the the same job at heart um 
I think it would be the same job at heart, but with a lot more emotion. And I think, you know, both um, Sheila and Gwen have talked about fear. And I think that's a significant difference between the interviews I did with New Zealand, where nurses are not talking about fear, but the nurses in America are. And I think that's fear of their nursing colleagues, but also of their clients and patients in the community as well. Yes, it was a strongly positive message from the the communities in, in New Zealand, wasn't it? Yes. Yes, it was. It was. There was still a lot um, in relation to communication, effective teamwork, people changing their jobs, or you know, um, learning new skills to be available. There, there's some commonalities, but um, definitely you can feel a different sense of the effects COVID has had in America. And our third. American nurse for the day is Sarah Talbot. Okay, my name is Sarah Talbot. I'm the director of nursing at Sanford Health in Chamberlain, South Dakota. Um, I've been in this role for eight years, nine years now. Um, it's a 25 bed critical access hospital that um, is part of a large enterprise um, facility, um, Sanford Health. Um, we serve a tri county area that is has a lot of social economic issues. Um, so that's kind of our service area. Have you seen an uh, impact of COVID-19 in your local community, um, Sarah? So uh, in South Dakota, we had the luxury a little bit of having time on our side. So it didn't come to South Dakota as quickly as it hit the, some other spots in the nation. So we were able to prepare a little bit more. Um, so. Some things that we did um, right off the bat is we started to look at um, having daily meetings. What does that look like for Sanford? What does it look like for a rural facility at 25 bed? Um, we typically transfer our critical patients, but knowing that they may be at a surge capacity that they can't take our critical patients, what does that look like? So we, um, we were asked to surge also, like I told you, we are 25 bed critical access and we um, agreed to surge up 40 beds. So we started to need to look at patient rooms that had been changed into offices or now would be changed back into patient rooms. Um, looking at cardiac rehab to make that a, a patient room and double occupancy. Um, we looked at our outreach clinic area. Um, those used to be patient rooms and we made them more into a clinic room for outreach providers that come from the tertiary hospital, switching those back into patient rooms. And then lastly, we had a clinic space that wasn't being utilized anymore. So we looked at that as an overflow area as well to house patients to get us up to that 40 number. Um, a lot of work went into that with um, different departments as well as um, IT, because of course we're having electronic medical records. So we had to build those rooms um, into, our, into our electronic medical records so we could chart on those patients if we needed them. Have you seen a change in your team, team of nurses and, and allied health professionals? Yes, um, we, have a, we have a really strong team, which seemed to help a lot. And, and you know, you bring in ancillary services and maintenance and like I said, IT, and you look at it from a very whole picture so that you make sure all your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed if you come to that point where you need all that 
that, those extra rooms. And you did some work in preparation for um, COVID-19? Correct. Yes. Thank goodness we haven't had to surge to 40 beds, um, but we did do it in preparation. And of course, we staff for, uh, you know, an average census of six to eight with a surge, you know, during peak flu season, you know, 12 to 15. So we had to look at staffing and how would we staff for 40 patients. Uh, so some things we did for staffing is we upskilled our clinic nurses. So we put them through um, some training to go from a clinic type nurse up to a hospital nurse, knowing that they wouldn't take care of your ventilated patients, but your sick um, COVID or non-COVID patients. Um, we looked at bringing a few long-term care nurses aides up to help us as well, um, and our quality nurse. We were fortunate, we um, were a small community, and so we had some nurses that used to work for us that, you know, watching the news knew what knew what we could be in for. And so they offered to come and work for us unscheduled part-time if we did surge. And so we brought those nurses back on board and got them trained in case we would need them. So, and then of course we had um, radiology. We have a clinic that has a radiology, uh, radiology tech. So she was gonna come down and be able to help provide some of those supports and things like that as well. You know, um, South Dakota has been really good at flattening our curve. And so um, we have not had to surge past, you know, 12 to 15 patients and they're not, right now we're transferring our COVID patients. Um, like I said, we have a social economic issue kind of around our area. So our patients that come in are pretty ill and need that higher level of care. Um, so the tertiary hospital in Sioux Falls, they surged before we did. Um, and so now we're starting to see an uptick in our numbers, but they're able to take our critical patients for us. So um, we see them in the ER and we stabilize and, we, and we're transferring them right now because they are so medically complex when they get to us. Or they're not ill enough that we see them in the ER and we sent, we're able to send them home. So it's odd our two types of patients are either able to go home or they need that higher, higher level of care. How has this um, impacted on the community, Sarah? Uh, right away, I, it impacted them quite a bit. Uh, they went through the recommendations that South Dakota put out with the businesses, you know, either going to curbside only for restaurants or carry out. And so it was pretty impactful, I think, from them from a financial standpoint. And then people just listened, you know, schools, um, went to e-learning and so you your kids were home and you had uh, businesses that had non-essential workers for a lack of better way to say it that were able to either work from home or stayed home so you had quite a bit of economic issues there um, from that aspect as well um, so that was a little bit of a community issue now they did kind of come together and like they donated a lot of cloth masks and different things like that to, to the hospital to try to help and or to other organizations, you know, or people that wanted to just have masks. So we did see quite a um, community support and making sure. And then you've seen, um, you know, our governor talked a lot about social distancing and hand hygiene and um, just etiquette when you're ill. And we did see a lot at that beginning where people really followed those rules and listened. Um, now as South Dakota starts to open back up, you see them maybe a little bit less um, wearing their masks and 
But I still think that vulnerable population and the hand hygiene and all of that is still very key to them and at the forefront of their mind. Have you seen any positive outcomes that have come from this um, situation that we're in at the moment? You know, one thing I think that's really positive for us is I think community-wise people are just more aware of being more thoughtful of if you're sick, stay home wash your hands, be cognitive of how close you are to people for social distancing and just some things like that. I also think that it brought our team real close. I mean, we're a good team here in Chamberlain, but you've seen from the local level all the way up to the enterprise level, just the communication and the changing and making sure everybody was up to date, I thought um, was very positive to see that process and work. You know, you drill for it, you talk about it, you practice it. um, And then when it came push came to shove and you needed to use it. I felt like the trainings and the drills really led up to us being able to run that very well. What do you think um, is the the future um, of COVID-19? You know, I think when, the, when they get a vaccine, I think you'll see a lot less fear out of people. Um, you know, in visiting with a variety of different people, they, you know, some are from, we need to stay locked down until there's a vaccine, where other people feel like social distancing and doing what we have been doing is not, is enough. So I feel like when you get a vaccine that you'll see um, people more comfortable being out and about. Um, I feel like the future of the vulnerable population will stay more, um, Oh, engage, maybe not engage, but more mindful of, of being aware of who's sick. And I think you'll see more people being more mindful of when they visit the elderly or the vulnerable population. Um, so I do feel like that, that will help and we'll see that in the future. How do you think well. this will impact on population health, um, both now and in the future? Yeah, so I think, again, with the vaccine, that will be it. I do think with population health, you'll see, um, I think people will just be better at hand hygiene and staying home when they're sick. And um, and I think there'll be less of a, oh, she called in or, oh, they stayed home from school because they're ill. I think it will just, it brings more education and highlights the importance of doing that so that you don't have a huge spread and that you don't overwhelm healthcare system. Sarah, would you like to dedicate a song or a poem or a quote uh, for your community and your colleagues? You know, I thought I looked at some different things and I liked a quote from Winston Churchill that said, the pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity, the optimist sees opportunity in every difficulty. And I thought that kind of spoke volumes for a uh, time when we're in a pandemic with a disease that we've never seen and and you really watched um, the Sanford team look at it as an opportunity on, on how to educate and make it a safe place for staff and for patients and for everybody involved. And so I felt that was fitting for, for what I've seen. Very different feeling, isn't it, from that group that we had before, the New Zealand ones. They talk about being positive but it seems more like it's talk or, but maybe it's their professional training, but it doesn't seem as, as deeply ingrained as the New Zealand ones. Although the experience seems more like 
they've survived a, a trauma. Hmm. I suppose New Zealand, the New Zealand nurses knew that they they dodged it. Yes. The country dodged it. Yes, and I suppose we in New Zealand came later to the to this pandemic um, and have come out of it sooner. So maybe we haven't had the months of the the potential trauma that maybe America, rural America, is still seeing um, and the lived experience of that. I also think there's something else that we need to consider and that is that in America um, there is the potential to um, sue. Not everybody has health care and I think the one thing that the colleagues in, um, in both in New Zealand and America have seen the vulnerable, the health disparity and the vulnerability of people. What do you think we can learn from this for the models of rural nursing practice? Um, I think what's come out is about the scope of practice, the flexibility not been siloed into specific areas. Um, and that has built up really good teamwork. The other thing is um, I'm noticing uh, both in New Zealand and America, um, the nurses have met on a daily basis instead of a monthly basis, but a daily basis. And I think there's something that we can learn from that as well. Um, why is it um, necessary to communicate virtually on a very regular basis and I think that would be interesting to look at for the future. We've talked before about the rural nurses having to maintain a community of practice which is beyond themselves because they're likely to be on their own. Uh, not in America. In New Zealand, nurses can be working solo, um, on call. There, there's a, that's another difference. The, the nurses that we have spoken to from America have been um, base, rural base hospitals. And the nurses in New Zealand have been both hospital and, as we know it, general practice, community driven, with smaller populations and a reduced number of health professionals, but still in New Zealand, maintaining a really good communication on a daily basis has been as important um, as it has in America. One thing I thought was interesting was that um, the, the, these nurses that we've just interviewed have also um, explained that things may change within an hour or 15 minutes. and. Despite them being in the pandemic longer than us and um, also having more intensity, they still are learning as they're moving along on a daily basis. So not only are we situated in a change environment, that change is changing regularly too. And nurses are trying to catch up with what is going on and therefore effective communication has been the essence to delivering healthcare in a changing environment. Something that several people that we've had on Blowing Bubbles have talked about is how that the in this moment of global crisis it's a 
as um, to invoke Ruth Richardson, this is the mother of all learning moments, but also it's its values stripped bare, that you're making decisions quite quickly, and in that case, the values on which you're basing those decisions come out quite quite quickly. Have you seen that in rural nursing? Um, yes, and I think it is a matter of not making decisions yourself. I think in New Zealand, a lot of rural nurses work isolation, um, and they have to make prompt decisions with what they've got in front of them, the evidence that they've got, and make decisions. Whereas I think with this pandemic, the nurses are talking together. They're being directed by ministry, by um, protocols, and therefore maybe what you would do in Northland is different what you would do in West Coast. And I'm unsure about how that pans out in the USA. Um, but it does look like they are also, with the situation, the context and the people that they've got, they are adapting their healthcare given the situation. So I think context comes into this. Um, and as we know, Sam, you know, there's been a lot of talk in New Zealand about PPE, the availability of it um, and so forth. And um, if you haven't got PPE or you have limited amount, then you need to make some rational decisions. When somebody's writing a rural nursing textbook in four or five years' time, what will the section on the pandemic say? Mm. I think we need to learn and look at the interviews, um, transcripts a little bit more in depth, Sam. But I think what I'm gathering from this is about collaboration, teamwork, effective communication, trusting each other and trying to do the best thing for your community. Community comes out very strongly, as it does in, in all rural nursing practice. Um, but this is also about role modelling. It's about being aware of the, vulner the vulnerable again and um, the isolated, the older people and looking after each other and community. Have there been any surprises? I think this one main surprise is, is about communication, teamwork, um, changing role. I think on reflection that we will see a different model of practice and we'll see a responsive model of practice. And we may learn from that in the future to be responsive rather than and I don't think in New Zealand one one uh, model fits all at all but from a funding perspective one model tries to fit all but I don't think that actually is effective and um, you know the the other thing is where there's a crisis there's change and where there's crisis in rural New Zealand for the past 30, 40 years, different models of practice have um, been developed and urban New Zealand has wanted those models of practice. So I think it's too early to actually indicate what that chapter, what, what chapter will be in that book, but I actually think we need um, really good reflection on the process now and we will learn from it, I'm sure.
So you've been asking people for their music selections to go out on. Who would you like? Nice question. I'd like um, Dignity by Deacon Blue, Scottish band that I've listened to since the 1980s. They are my holidays, they'll be doing the rounds. They'll ask me how I got it, I'll say, I save my money, I say, isn't she pretty? Let's and I'm telling a story in a faraway sea, sipping down racket and reading in our keys. And I'm thinking about home and all that that means, and a place in the winter for dignity. And towns, I'll be on my holidays. They'll be doing the rounds. They'll ask me how I got a house. I'll save my money. I say, isn't she pretty? That ship to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio every weekday afternoon at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This has been the second of our specials focusing on rural nursing practice with Associate Professor Jean Ross from Otago Polytechnic. We've had contributions from Sheila Westfield, Gwen Post and Sarah Talbot. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin with Jean Ross, who this afternoon is also in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin. We hope you enjoyed the show. (laughs) 
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.